All right, week number two of the book of Ruth. Uh, if you're in one of our physical campuses on the seat back near you or in a cup holder, if you're in the movie theater there in Germantown, a little sermon note card, kind of a culture of taking notes here at Go Church. I encourage you to do that. Take advantage of that. If you're going to use your smartphone, uh, make sure you turn it on airplane mode so you're not distracted by social media or text messages about where we're going to eat lunch. Come on now. But take some notes today. The book of Ruth is a small book in size, but a powerful book in Revelation. Uh, four chapters long. You can read the entire book in about 15 minutes, which I highly encourage you to do. It is a brilliant work of theological art, but it's also a beautiful love story. I was reading the book of Ruth again this week and just thinking about, you know, it'll be the end of October when, come on ladies, Hallmark movies return. Come on now. All these guys excited about their football. Come on, we're talking Hallmark, ladies. Come on, where you at? Make some noise. Come on, it's all right. So I have to, if I want to enjoy the football season, I have to endure the Hallmark season. Come on now. So I'm thinking, though, about the book of Ruth and how this could be an incredible Hallmark movie. What a love story this is. When you begin in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth and you journey all the way to chapter number 4, write this down. This is a little lengthy, but this is what... The Holy Spirit dropped in my heart. The book of Ruth records no miracles. There's no supernatural visitations in the book of Ruth. There are no divine revelations in this book. You know what the book is about? It's a, it's a, a story about death, about loss, about grief. Anybody been there? Come on. It's a story about widows. Yet in God's ability to do what only God can do, throughout this entire book, you'll see the hand of God at work in miraculous, supernatural, and divine ways, all in an effort to redeem. On the count of three, everybody say the word redeem. One, two, three. That's what the whole book is about. It's about redemption. It's beautiful. I, I was wondering, though, why would they name this particular book the book of Ruth? Uh, let me give you some thoughts here to chew on. Um, Ruth is one of three main characters in this book. You have Naomi, her mother-in-law. She's a main character, so they could have named the book the book of Naomi. You have Boaz, which we'll learn more about today and over the next few weeks. You have Boaz, who is a kinsman redeemer to Ruth. So appropriately, the book could have been named the book of Boaz. There are 66 books in your Bible from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, 66 books. Only two of them are named after women, the book of Ruth and the book of Esther. Only two of them. And then to also think that they would name this book the book of Ruth when Ruth was not an Israelite woman. Ruth was a Moabite, meaning she was from the country of Moab. And that's important because Ruth is the only book in the entire Bible that's named after a non-Israelite. So why would God have them name this book the book of Ruth? When you dive into chapter number one, you'll see that chapter number one is full of tragedy. Chapter number one is all about death. But then you also see this uh, theme of loyalty begin to surface. Uh, let me give you a little context here, a little background. You have an Israelite family. You have Elimelech, who is the, the man of his home. He's married to a woman by the name of Naomi. They have two sons. There's a famine in their land, so they move to Moab. There, the two sons marry two Moabite women. One son 
marries Ruth. The other son marries Orpah, right? They get married within 10 years. Elimelech and his two sons, all three of the men in the family, they die, leaving Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth as widows. Now, Naomi says to her two daughters-in-law, she says, you need to go back home. You need to return to your family. You don't have to stay here with me. Your husbands are deceased. Uh, you, you no longer are committed to this family. You're not responsible to us. Orpah's like, I'm out. Come on. Some of y'all have a daughter-in-law like that, okay? Uh, but Ruth is incredibly committed to, to Naomi. She's very, very loyal. Let's go back to Ruth chapter 1 because this is important. I want you to see this. Uh, let's read this together. I want you to stay engaged today. Ready? One, two, three. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. This is what Ruth says. You ready? Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I mean, this is an incredible story of loyalty between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And in chapter number one, we see the three men of the family die. These three women now become widows. Uh, they're journeying back to a foreign land. Naomi releases her daughters-in-law. One leaves, but Ruth says, I'm going wherever you go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people, and I'll stay faithful. When you get into chapter number two, chapter number two, if I'm giving it a theme, it's a theme of hope. And let me tell you this. This is my prayer for you today. I don't know what you walked into a campus with on your shoulders. I don't know the heaviness of your heart. I don't know your challenges, your storm, your pain, your problem, your issues, your health, your money, your marriage, your family. I could go on and on and on. I don't know what you're going through, but I do know this, that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Come on now. And I pray that today that whatever you walked in with, that you would feel encouraged through the story that there is hope even in the most hopeless situations. And I want you to experience the God of hope. And in chapter number two, this is what we see. We begin to see hope overtake grief. We begin to see hope overtake pain. We begin to see hope overtake loss. Let's go to chapter number two. If you got your Bible, you can flip there with me. If you want to follow along on the television screen, that's fine too. Ruth chapter number two, the first two verses, watch this. There was a wealthy man, an influential man in Bethlehem, and his name was, on the count of three, shout Boaz, one, two, three, Boaz. He was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. That's important, and we'll circle back to that importance here in just a moment. Verse number two. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, she said, let me go out into the field. I'm going to go look for some food. I'll go look for some leftover grain. Maybe somebody has dropped some, and God will give us favor. So here what we see is we see two widows. They're broke and they're hungry. And Ruth decides to go look for some food. Where are my ladies at that love some food? Come on, it's all right. That's good stuff right there, all right? She says, we're hungry. We got to go find some food. So it's the beginning of the barley harvest, and she goes out into the field. It just so happens that this particular field that she ends up in is owned by a man named Boaz. And when Boaz sees Ruth, I would say that that experience is almost equal to my experience of when I saw Kimberly. Come on, somebody. Boaz saw Ruth, and he said, mm-hmm, 
Do you know what kind of man Boaz was before he met Ruth? He was a ruthless man. Come on, that's funny. I don't care who you are. I worked on that joke all week. Come on, help your neighbor get the joke. It's funny. Watch this. So Boaz says to Ruth, he uses this term of endearment, and he says, my daughter. And some of you are already thinking he's, you know, he's just laying it on real thick. He's spitting game. He's, you know, he's trying, he's trying to, to, to win over her heart. He says, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Verse number nine. He says, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. He says, I've, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Could you imagine the danger that Ruth would put herself in by being uh, in a foreign field with strangers, the challenges of a single woman, a widowed woman, and yet Boaz says nobody's going to touch her. They're not going to lay a hand on her, whether that's physically or sexually. Nobody's going to touch her. And watch what he says in verse number 9. He says, and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have already filled. Now, again, some of you are thinking, all right, Boaz is just, he's making his move. He's trying to, 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 to show her how much he already loves her and how much he thinks about her. And maybe so, but what Boaz is really doing is following a very explicit law that's written in the Torah. Torah is the Hebrew word for the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in Deuteronomy, there is this law, this Old Testament law, that Boaz is very mindful of. Now imagine the story and how it's progressing. A widow woman, a foreigner, ends up in his field. She's hungry. She's not on his payroll. You following me? She's waiting for leftover grain to be dropped, hoping that God would provide favor. Boaz catches her eye. I'm sure he's already wowed by her beauty. Ruth was a beautiful woman. But he knows that he is responsible according to the Old Testament law to take care of her. Watch what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 24, verse number 19. When you are harvesting your crops and forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Here it is. Leave it for the foreigners, the orphans, and the who? The widows. And church, today we still have a responsibility to take care of the widows. Today, to leave it for the widows. Then the Lord your God will, somebody say, bless you. Bless you in all that you do. Now, Boaz, Boaz continues this conversation. And he says, look, I, I've heard about you. I know all about you. And again, I remember when I, I met Kimberly, I was preaching at a church uh, just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Kimberly walked in to that Sunday night you know, church gatherings. She was late. I should have known then she ain't never going to be on time. Come on, somebody. But she walked in. I fell in love with her right away. We were at Lee University together. You know, her mom and dad told her, don't go up there and get your MRS degree. Be careful of all these guys. They're going to say, thus saith the Lord, I love you and all that. But I saw her and I loved her. So I started to position myself around campus where Kimberly would be. So if there was an intramural game playing softball, I was playing and I'd be like, oh, Fancy seeing you here, Kimberly. There was only one really good restaurant back then. It was Steak and Shake in Cleveland, Tennessee. Come on now. And I'd go, I'd find out from other people that she's at Steak and Shake, and I'd show up to Steak and Shake. Nowadays, on September the 12th of 2021, they call that a stalker. Can I get a witness from somebody? <laughs> back then, I was just trying to figure out who she was. And I was, oh, I've heard all about you. And Boaz says, I've heard all about you. I've been told about what you've done for your mother-in-law. 
since the death of your husband. Watch what he says here. How you left your father, you left your mother, you left your homeland. You came to live with the people that you didn't even know before. And, and I want you to see this. In verse number 12, he actually begins to pray for her. Now, I don't know who's single in this room or who's single in Germantown or online. But ladies, let me tell you this. Not only should you wait for your Boaz, come on, who is a wealthy man, a hardworking man, come on, a, a, a good man, but you need to find you a man that will pray for you. Can I get a witness? Come on. You, that was a weak amen, but that, you, well, just stay on Tinder then, all right? That's all right. But get off Tinder and find you a Boaz, all right? I could preach that. I'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. Here we go. Watch this. He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord. That's his prayer. May you be richly rewarded by the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so Ruth runs home. She tells Naomi. And this verse number 20 is a powerful, powerful verse in this entire story. Ruth runs home. She tells Naomi about the favor that she has now experienced, how she ended up in a field owned by a man named Boaz, and Naomi is over-the-top excited, like really, really excited. And this is what she says. She says, may the Lord bless him. May the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. And then she added, that man is our close relative. He is our what? Kinsman. Redeemer. That's not a very familiar word or understanding in our culture today because we don't practice that like it was practiced back in this time. But a kinsman redeemer was very much the cultural practice of, again, the Torah. If you were responsible or designated as a kinsman redeemer then you were to act on behalf of a relative that might be in trouble. You were responsible to step up for a family member that would be in danger. Or if that family had a need, you were going to take care of that particular need. The Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer is the Hebrew phrase goel. And it literally designates someone who will deliver or rescue and will redeem property or a person. Isn't that so wild? Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, a distant relative of Elimelech, the late husband of Naomi. Ruth somehow, and it ain't happenstance, church, ends up in his field, and now he is going to be responsible to be a kinsman redeemer. All right, that's the context. Can I preach? All right, let's go. Three lessons. From Ruth chapter 2 that the Lord has dropped him hard to share with you today. And the first one is this. What I think is a setback might actually be a divine setup. Here's one of the things, and you've heard me say this before, that I love about this television. You touch it with one finger and it will advance forward. You touch it with two fingers and it will advance back. I'm going to go back because that wasn't a good enough amen. Come on now. I said a lesson that I've learned from Ruth chapter 2 is that what I think is a setback might actually be a divine setup. Yeah, we can testify to that, can't we? We can testify to the fact that in our lives there have been challenges and difficulties and tragedies and pains and mistakes and we look at where we are and we feel like we have been set back. 
But for those who are in a relationship with Christ Jesus, we serve a God, listen to me, that can turn bad things to good. He's a God that is in the business of being a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper. He's the light in the darkness. And even when we can't see him, God is strategically and through his sovereignty, God is working. And I'm declaring that what the devil meant for evil, God can turn that thing around and he can make it good. And he witnesses to that truth. It's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. And we've quoted this even in this series already. But it's Romans 8 verse 28. That, and we know that in how many things? All things. And let me tell you, I don't think that everything that happens is because of God, nor do I think that everything that happens is because of the devil. Not everything is God's fault and not everything is the devil's fault. Sometimes you and I are just an idiot. Look at your neighbor and say, if he's ever been preaching about you, it's right now. Go ahead, tell him. If he's ever talked about you. Sometimes we encountered self-inflicted stupid storms. Where it ain't nobody's fault but your fault. Anybody ever been there? Come on. But even when it's our own fault, that setback, if we give it to God through our mistake, God can turn that thing around. God is in the business of taking every spiritual attack of the enemy and being glorified through it. God is in the business of taking every dumb thing that you've ever done or every dumb thing that I've ever done and turning it around. We serve a God that turns bad things to good. It's who he is. Sometimes we don't know what God is up to. If you allow me to be transparent, the last 18 months, I've asked God more times than I probably should, what are you doing? What's going on with all of this? You and I, we've experienced the lowest of lows in the last year and a half. And just when we thought maybe we were in the ninth inning of the global pandemic, we learned that we never even got out of the seventh. And now here we are again across our nation and around the world, and there is sickness, and there's pain, and there's tragedy, and there's grief. And every time I get on social media, somebody else has lost a loved one. People have gotten divorced, and people have walked away from God and stepped away from their faith. And I'm wondering, God, what are you up to? What's going on? Just let me know I'm not the only one that's ever asked that in the last 18 months. Thank you so much. And I was reminded some months ago of this, that our finite minds... We'll never be able to fully understand the ways of an infinite God. Our ways are not like his ways. Our thoughts are not like his thoughts. And while I do not believe with anything in my, in my being that COVID-19 came from God, I believe that even through this pandemic, God can be glorified and revival can come. Do you believe that? Your thinking, my thinking is very, very limited. We'll never be able to comprehend the ways of God, the thinking of God. And let me tell you, that's a good thing. That's where, that's where faith has to override fear. And whatever it is that you're walking through in this season, whatever you've walked into this room with, I'm telling you that you serve a God that can turn every tragedy into triumph. You serve a God that can turn every single pain into purpose. You serve a God that can turn every one of your mistakes into a message. I remember at 13 years old, getting a phone call in the middle of the night that would shake our family for generations to come. My father, who was an over-the-road truck driver, made a run from Tampa to New York, and he was coming back home. 
On his way back home, he stopped at a motel somewhere in Virginia. He told the person working at the front desk, I need a comfortable bed and a warm shower because tomorrow I'm going to see my family. A couple hours went by and my dad rang the front desk. He was having a massive heart attack. I never saw him again. Didn't get to tell him I love him. Didn't get to say goodbye. At 13 years old, going into the eighth grade and then eventually into high school and college, now I've got no earthly father. My mom becomes a widow. We struggled financially. And I wonder time and time again, how can you, God, get any good from that? When I turned 19, I gave my life to Jesus. I had ran for six years from the Lord. I turned to just about everything that the world could offer and only found myself more empty and lonely and broken and depressed. So working for a commercial landscaper, he had me cut a cemetery in Tampa off Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, 19 and a half acres, 47,000 graves. I'd start on Monday, I'd finish on Friday, by the time the weekend came, I'd have to start all over again. It was a big cemetery. In about mid-September of 1999, I, I was riding on that red snapper lawnmower. Probably had my little Walkman radio in. Some of y'all don't even know about that. Come on. And I felt the power of God hit me in a supernatural way. When I looked up, the image that I saw in my eyes, and this was literal, not figuratively speaking, literally Speaking, I saw that red snapper lawnmower just keep on moving, and I was face down in that cemetery. Only two times have I ever heard the auditory voice of God, where God has spoken like over heaven's intercom. It was the day I got saved and the day that God called us to plant Go Church. And in that cemetery, I heard the Lord call me, save me, rescue me, call me into ministry. Gave me three very specific things that I was supposed to do with my life. I remember being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. I grew up Baptist, y'all. I didn't know what was going on. And I'm in a cemetery. I see dead people. I remember getting up and running to a little shed that was on the other side of the cemetery, calling my mom, telling her about the experience. The point of the whole story is this. I went off to Lee University. I got my first opportunity as a youth pastor. In that Chattanooga, Tennessee area, the same church I met, Kimberly. And I remember standing in front of that youth group on the first Wednesday night, about 12 kids that I just fell in love with. Here I am, a young, single, tall, incredibly handsome. You got to throw that in there. Come on now. Y'all not going to help me. I'll talk about myself before the gray, you know. And... Uh, I just remember God beginning to move in that youth group. And in that youth group was a 13-year-old boy named Michael. One night, in the middle of the night, my phone rang. Michael, 13 years old, his dad died unexpectedly. And I'm on the other end of the line, and I'm not rejoicing in his father's passing, but I'm thinking, I know exactly how he feels. I remember driving over to his house and walking in his little bedroom and there is his mom, now widowed, and Michael weeping 
at the foot of his bed, and I put my arm around him, and I said, I have been there. I know what you're going through. And all of a sudden, I recognize that even in the most painful experience of my life, that now I'm able to have a greater empathy for someone that's walking the exact same story, the exact same journey. For years, I wrestled with God. How can you ever, ever get glory from this? And now I'm holding on to a 13-year-old boy that has just lost his father. And the revelation of God's sovereignty came into my heart that, man, God can take anything, anything. God, God can take your nasty divorce. God can take your failed business. God can take your, your sick body. God can take your brokenness, and he can turn it all for his good. Listen to me. Is it not amazing to you that God could take a homeless, penniless, husbandless widow woman and weave her into the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Read the story. That Ruth becomes a part of the genealogy of Christ Jesus. A woman that many people would consider an outcast and good for nothing. If God can do that for her, God can do that for you. And if God can do that for me, God can do that for anybody. Can I get 300 people that would testify to that truth? Come on. God can take your brokenness. God can take your hurt. God can take your pain if you'll just give it to him. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And God is not only strategic, but he is incredibly sovereign. And when you give him it all, he works it all for his good. Man, I'm just thankful today that I serve that kind of God. That no matter how broken I am, no matter how low I am, no matter how defeated I feel, that the moment I reach out to Jesus, he is my redeemer. And he reaches his, his, his hands down low and he embraces me, puts me on solid ground, will turn your whole life around when you say yes to Jesus. The reason you typically never find purpose in the pain is because you try to hold on to it yourself. But the moment that you release the mistake, you release the tragedy, you release the grief, you give God all of it. Now you allow him the opportunity to begin to do what only God can do. And if he can, if he can weave her into the genealogy of Christ Jesus, there ain't a mountain in your life that God can't get glory from. Come on and give Jesus one more praise. Come on. Secondly, the second truth or lesson that I learned from Ruth chapter 2 is this. Faith will always lead to obedience, and obedience leads to abundance. Let's say this whole phrase together on the count of three. Can we do that? You ready? One, two, three. Faith leads to obedience, and obedience leads to abundance. Every time, if you read this whole story, and I know we're just in chapter two, but if you read the whole thing, every single time that Ruth was hit with a setback, she made a choice. Every time. And her choice was made by faith. And the choice was what? I'm just going to keep moving. 
I think it was Finding Nemo, where just, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, right? Let's keep moving. She never allowed the pain. She never allowed the tragedy. She never allowed the grief or the loss to paralyze her in that reality. She always allowed her faith to override the setback. And every time she moved, God's favor followed. Now, God's favor was there, but every time she moved, the favor of God was evident. By faith, she moved. This isn't on the TV screen, but you need to write this down. Motion trumps emotion. Just keep moving. Take a step, and whatever that next step is for you, just take a step of faith. Faith leads to obedience, and obedience is what leads to abundance. That obedience plus faith is what allows you to walk in God's favor. Watch this. Paul told the church at Corinth, he said, we must walk by, come on, do it again. We must walk by, not by sight. I'll tell you the challenge with the last 18 months is, we are paralyzed by what we see. We're paralyzed by what we see, but if we are in a relationship with Jesus, we can't base our lives off of what we see. We got to live our lives based off of what God says. And I know what you see. I see it too. I see COVID and the pandemic and the death and the grief. But God says that even through all of this, in this world, you will have trouble. That's what you see. But take heart because I, Jesus, have overcome the world. I know what you see, but God says that you are more than a conqueror. Through, Are you understanding me? I, I know what you see, but I know what God says. And God says that you are victorious. So you got to get your eyes off of what you see. And start living your life based off of what God says. I know what the doctor says. I know what you see on that health report. And I, I, know what it, I know what you see. It's cancer. It's a debilitating disease. It's you can't ever have children. It's fill in the blank. But what does God say? God says that by his stripes you are made well. So you have to choose to believe the report of the Lord and not just what you see. Are you listening to me? So let me give you some advice here. Don't, don't be paralyzed by this when and then mindset. Because we allow what we see to paralyze us, so we walk in fear and not faith. But fear doesn't lead to obedience. Faith leads to obedience. Fear will never bring abundance. Fear will only produce lack. Are you with me? So you got to get out of this uh, paralysis mindset, this when and then thinking. And this is what we do all the time, based off of our, our circumstances that we see in the natural. Which, by the way, there is the natural world, there is a supernatural world, and the supernatural world is even more real than the natural world. So just because, here's another thing that I need to say. That, man, there's a, I'm, JC, you're saying a lot of good things. Yes, you are. You should be a preacher. I think I will. Thank you. Watch this. you got to stop with an earthly mindset and have an eternal mindset. Get your eyes off of what you see just in the natural. And so many of you, you're living in fear. You're paralyzed by this when and then mindset. Well, here's what it sounds like. Well, one day when. Uh, let, let's run through some of these practical things. One day when we've, you know, got a little bit more of an understanding of each other, then we'll get married. So you're just going to live together until you figure it out? Ah, one day when 
We get a little bit more money, then we'll start thinking about kids. We'll have kids. Let me just tell you, you will never have enough money for your expensive kids. Come on, parents. <laughs> now, some of y'all don't need to have kids ever, no matter how much money you got. Somebody testify to that. Go ahead. But one day when, then I'll. One day, one day when, then I'll. One day when, then I'll. You know what it is? Here's some things I hear in the church. Well, one day when I've got my, 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 uh, my money figured out, then I'll start giving. But Luke 6, 38 says, give and it shall be given. Press down, shaken together, running. Faith leads to obedience. Obedience leads to abundance. But one day when, now some of you are thinking, is this message about money? It's not. At Go Church, we never want money. It's never about money. It's never about you know, us wanting something from you. It's everything about God and what he has for you. And that's important for you to know. But there are blessings that you unlock when you begin to give God everything, including your money. Are you with me? Well, one day when my schedule's not so busy, then I'll start serving. Okay, but 1 Peter 4.10 says that you've got to use whatever gift you have. So when are you ever going to not be busy? Because I know people that have walked into retirement that have said, I'm more busy now than I've ever been. So this when and then mindset, this when and then thinking is incredibly dangerous. Listen to me. You're paralyzed in relationships, in life, in business, in faith, because you're trapped. Because you can't get your eyes off of what you see. Listen to me. You need to take a step. If the step is move track, go to move track. Learn about your gifts. Learn what's next. Today, you heard this in the, uh, the video announcements. Today, we start, we start groups. Well, one day when COVID's not there, then I'll get in a group. Well, what was your excuse when COVID wasn't here and you weren't in a group? Because then it was a win and then think, my God, JC, keep preaching, whether they say amen or not. It's, listen to me. The blood of Jesus can cover everything but your excuses. So when and then is an excuse. We walk by faith and not by sight. Use wisdom, social distance. Don't take this message out of context, but Ruth moved by faith and God's favor followed the move. So if you want favor, you, you gotta take a step because if you keep on waiting for everything to line up perfectly before you act, that's not called faith. That's called control. And I think some of you are just control freaks. You just want control. You can't be in a relationship with God and have complete control. It's faith that leads to obedience and obedience that leads to abundance. I don't know what your next move is, but every one of you got to move. Every one of you got to step. Counseling, coaching, accountability, move track, groups, a hard conversation, an honest conversation really allowing yourself to grieve. I could stand here up all day until we figure out what your next move is, but every single one of you got to move. And when you move by faith and you stop allowing fear to keep you paralyzed, God will bless you exceedingly abundantly. Come on, let's give Jesus the highest praise if you know that to be true. All right, one more thought. What I thought was a setback might actually be a divine setup. Faith leads to obedience, and obedience leads to abundance. And here's a third lesson that I learned, and it's simple, but you need to know it. Boaz was a man. 
But Jesus is the man. Come on, church. The entire book of Ruth is the foreshadowing of Jesus Christ as our great redeemer. You want to know why I believe they named the book the book of Ruth? Because it's you and I. It's a story about me and you. Now, when you read it on the surface level, it's like this beautiful love story. And guess what? It is. But you are the main character. And the whole book foreshadows this truth that Jesus Christ is our great redeemer. Jesus is the one that can redeem. Look at Titus. I got a couple verses here. Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us to what? Redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. If you go to the Webster's Dictionary, here's what redeem means. It means to buy back. It means to repurchase. I'm out of time. I wish I had more, but watch real quick. You and I were created in the image of God. On whatever day you were born, you were born into this world a sinner. Fallen, broken humanity. You couldn't save yourself. You can't redeem yourself. So God loved the world so much, he gave Jesus to be crucified on a cross. It was Jesus that would come as our great redeemer to buy us back. Who was he buying us back from? From, from sin, from death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So God says to Jesus, you got to go, go redeem them. You got to go buy them back. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. So God sends us Jesus and watch what Jesus does. Look at this verse. That Jesus, when he came, he didn't buy you with any earthly thing. He didn't, have, he didn't put silver or gold down to buy you. He didn't use cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, none of that. No, none of that is how you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you. Watch this. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. And this Lamb was Jesus. And He was without blemish or defect. The, listen to me. No relationship. And I don't know who needs to hear this. You're moving from, from uh, relationship to relationship, from boyfriend to boyfriend, from girlfriend to girlfriend, from marriage to marriage. No man or no woman can fully redeem you. No amount of money, no job, no success, no achievement can ever fully redeem you. No nice car, no nice home, and I'm not against those things, but none of those can fully redeem you. Only Jesus, through his blood that was shed on the cross at Calvary, can fully redeem you. It is his blood that can buy you back, repurchase you out of your old life. Come on. And guess what? Jesus, he's already paid for you in full. You've already been paid for in full. That is the story of Ruth. That's our story. Is that we were lost. Foreigners, orphans, widows, broken, hurting, mess-ups, outcast, losers, good-for-nothings, second-class, JVB team sitting on the bench but then God showed up rich in mercy 
and he reached his hand down and he pulled you out of whatever it is that you've been walking through. And if you've not yet experienced that hope, guess what? There is breath in your lungs today. There's blood flowing in your veins and through your veins today. And if God can do it for Ruth, if God can do it for me. God can do it for you. He wants to redeem you. I always close with a question. Here it is. Do you even recognize God's sovereignty in your life? Do you recognize God's grace in your life? Or are we doing just pointing our finger at him or fist at him angry because of all of the stuff? In this world, you're going to have trouble, but even through the trouble, come on, somebody testify, God has been faithful. Even in the lowest of lows, God has always been faithful. So, do you recognize the sovereignty? Do you recognize the grace? And how should you respond to that? How should you respond to God's redeeming love for you? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, this message is going to fall on the ears of two different categories of people. On the one category, people will respond to this message because they've experienced your grace. They've experienced your kindness and your mercy and your sovereignty and your redemption. So they get it. They understand it because they've walked in it. But in the other category is people that are skeptical of this and they're pushing back at this because they've not yet experienced what you want to provide for them. So God, in this closing prayer, I pray that we would all just be reminded or maybe even you would allow your true love to be revealed that you are our kinsman redeemer, that you came to this world and you died on that cross for me and I'm looking around this room heads are bowed eyes are closed Germantown online as well but he came for you and 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 I know that life's been unfair and I know that life's been tough and I know there's been grief and I know there's been pain and I know there's been setback but God can turn everything that the devil meant for bad and he can make it good but only if you say yes to him only if you give your life to Jesus so if that's you today I'm gonna count to three nobody's looking but me and your campus pastors if you just need to say yes to God to experience that grace kindness mercy and sovereignty I want you to put your hand up you ready one two three come on hands 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, both campus pastors here. Hold them up for just a moment. Help me to identify. Thank you. All the way in the back. Many hands right here in this middle section. All the way far left. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Right up front, I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, Father, now, as hands have been lifted, and maybe some you're stirring in their heart, but they've not yet just taken that step to lift up their hand, you know. So I pray that they would admit 
that they are lost without you, that they would believe that you are who you say you are, and that they would confess and then commit their life. God, I pray that this would be a a new day. Your word talks about how you make us a new creation. And whatever has attached itself to us, whatever pain or storms that have come along, that today, God, that coming into a right relationship with you, you'd begin to turn that around and you'd begin to weave our story into God's story and that others who are hurting could see that if you can rescue and redeem us, you can do it for them too. So we give you thanks for the word of God and we give you thanks for those who have responded. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said amen and amen. Dozens of hands, come on, said yes to Jesus. All campuses, come on, let's just glorify God. Awesome.